has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in town and branch microbiter. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, 27-year veteran of the NYPD. And with me tonight is retired NYPD detective and straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. How you doing tonight, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy. Happy New Year to you and the family and all the subs. Absolutely. We call them our, our fans, our subs, and our friends, all the Police Off the Absolutely. Cuff family we also have an extra treat tonight. He's been pretty popular with uh, a lot of you guys, and he's a retired NYPD sergeant and a professor, uh, a criminal justice professor uh, in Connecticut. What's the name of your college again, Mike? I'm forgetting it. Albertus Magnus Albertus College. Albertus Magnus, that's right. Yeah. He's a professor at Albertus Magnus College in New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, welcome to the show, Michael Geary. How you doing, Mike? Billy, doing well. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. Guys, you know, this case, I mean, when you think of all the ebbs and flows of this case, the highs and the lows, it's just amazing. We have to all be so happy and thankful to the Moscow police, the FBI, the Idaho State Police, and staying with this case and making an arrest. And, and you know, letting the uh, all the resentment and the hatred they were getting from a lot of people and not releasing all kinds of information, specifically the uh, the press was really giving them a lot of heat for not, and they stayed true to themselves and they kept their mouths shut and look what happened. They made an arrest. Now this is really an unbelievable type of an arrest because we said early on in this case that what was going to solve this case was the victimology, which is the study of the victims, deep dive into the background of the victims. And the number one thing was science. And we hop on the fact that investigation is an art and a science. And all of those things were used in this investigation to put it all together. And ultimately, great police work, the white uh, Hyundai Elantra, that was a huge thing. And of course, DNA, but not just the processing of DNA in in the traditional sense, but the new 21st century way is... uh, Genetic genealogy, and someone corrected me the other day. So it's forensic genealogy. I go, no, it's <laughs> it's genetic genealogy. Genetic, you know, uh, um, DNA is your genetic code. So that's what gene- right. gene- genealogy is. Is it's using your genetic code, which is DNA, to answer questions and to come up with answers. So that's science, even though uh, relatively new, is is amazing. And look what they did in this case through identifying distant family members of the perpetrator and coming up with him. I think that that is unbelievable. So where are we right now? And I'm glad that we also, uh, one of the other reasons we have uh, Professor Mike Geary on, he just so happens to have a law degree. And uh, when I'm going to go to the legal questions tonight, I'm going to go to Professor Geary. Uh, And one of the things we're going to want to know is, Mike, the defense, we're already thinking about what is this guy? And his defense attorney, his name is um, 
Jason Allen Labar. He's already, you know, claiming, of course, his client is, he's baffled as to why he got arrested for this. And he's already saying he he's looking forward to clearing his name. Um, so one of the things, and Mike, we've seen cases with lots of evidence and defendants beat these cases. DNA, of course, is such a strong uh, piece of evidence, difficult, but not impossible. No, it's not. OJ Simpson's DNA was in the crime scene of the two people that were stabbed to death and he was found innocent. His blood DNA was found in that crime scene. So you can never say never. That's However, right. Mike, well, I just, before I want to preempt, before I ask you this question, it depends where was the DNA found. If the DNA was recovered on the bodies of these victims or underneath the fingernails of, of these victims, very tough for any attorney to refute that. Mike, you have the floor. Yeah, if it's if it's a uh, DNA blood DNA, if he'd st stabbed himself, as we talked about, he probably we believe may have injured himself in a in a frenzy of violence with the, with the knife. If it was found uh, as skin DNA uh, underneath one of the uh, victim's fingernails, that's really hard to explain away. Both of them are very hard to explain away. You really can't come up with a really good excuse as to why you were bleeding all over the crime scene yourself or why the victim had, or one or several of the victims had uh, their, your skin cell DNA underneath their fingernails. If it's something as, as, as minor as a piece of hair, a hair follicle or something like that, that might've been in a different room, say a living room or a vestibule, or there was maybe a fingerprint somewhere, then it's possible that he may argue that yes, he was in the house at an earlier time. He might have a witness that might say, yeah, I actually did see him at that party in September or at a, a, some other time. And that would be something he could probably hang his hat on a little bit to say, yes, I was in the place, but I was not there during the attack. But skin cell DNA under their fingernails or his blood DNA in the in the bedroom where the attack, actually, the murders actually took place. Um, he doesn't, it seems like he's, as we talked about with Phil wanting to, you know, get the guy in the box and talk to him, you box him in so that he really doesn't have a, a way out and explain, explain himself. You know, Mike, that's one of the things though, that's not an option because he probably immediately lawyered up. And so that Phil, and I'm going to have Phil talk about this. That would be something that detectives would slam the door on. And were you ever in this house? Ever. You were never in that house. Have you ever spoken blah, 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 blah? They would slam the door on all the information so that he couldn't later on use that as his defense. However, the investigators didn't have a chance to do that because I'm pretty sure that he lawyered up. Phil, I just want to go to you with this. We're just finding out from Brian Enton, a News Nation reporter, who spoke to the attorney, Mr. Um, uh, uh, Jason Allen Labar, who told him, that Brian, uh, excuse me, that, yeah, Brian's father drove with him back from the Washington University in mid-December. So that's a 2,500-mile uh, drive. He took the ride with him. Questions folks are going to have. Did he know that he did this? Or was he totally in the dark like everyone else? Phil, you got the floor. Well, I think that one of the things that might come up is if he had an injury to his hands, his arm, his face, uh, I am sure 
uh, as a parent, uh, I would question, you know, what happened? How'd you get the injury? Even if it's just a matter of factly, uh, I doubt highly that he, uh, you know, submitted to his father confession of uh, slaughtering four four people, although not impossible, could be. Again, uh, we may have a comparison to the Gabby Petito case with the uh, with the laundries. They were sued, uh, saying that they knew about the murder before uh, anyone else did. So again, it's possible that there was some conversation about it. Um, you know, did he leave early? Was there uh, some type of phone calls between the time that the murders took place and when the father went to get him? Was there some type of uh, you know maybe uh, a situation where uh, he was calling with uh, an issue. He wanted to come home sooner. Those are the things, those are the type of questions that if I had the opportunity to, that I would ask the father, what was his appearance like? What was his demeanor like on the ride home? Did he have any injuries? Did you notice anything unusual, anything peculiar? Was there any type of uh, a situation that he may have called you about around the time of the murder? Those are the types of questions that I would ask now. But uh, just to piggyback a little bit what Mike was talking about, two other things I want to bring up about uh, blood. Uh, if it's commingled blood, now commingled blood is if they take a blood sample and, and there's the DNA of one of the victims or two of the victims and the perpetrator, that's something that would be very hard to discount. And there's another thing we talked about in one of the previous shows, touch DNA. If one of the victims in the struggle to stop him, you know, trying to fight back defensive, defensively may have touched his skin. Now their hands are begged when, when the uh, uh, medical examiner and the crime scene people respond. There could have been touch DNA on the fingers, on the hands, or anywhere on the body of the victims, the perpetrator's uh, touch DNA is on their body. That's one that's like almost impossible. I would say that is impossible to say that he didn't have contact with that person because they are now found dead. And if that touch DNA is, it, it could even be on clothing, could be on a lot of different things. Uh, he could have had a droplet of sweat. Uh, you know, in his rage, he was sweating. That could have hit their body and could be recovered. We don't know exactly what evidence, uh, DNA evidence that they do have. But uh, Mike, you covered it pretty good. Those are all those things that uh, like a hair follicle or even a, uh, a fiber of, let's say, a blanket or drapery or rug or something like that. Those kind of things could be, uh, you know, uh, explained out by saying, well, I was in the apartment. But uh, commingled blood touch DNA, uh, anything under the fingernails, um, you know, whether it be blood or skin, uh, you know, molecules of skin under the fingernail, those are the things that are going to be extremely, extremely difficult to explain out at trial. All right, let me go to this video here. Seven weeks ago, CNN has learned that Brian Koberger's father was with him as he drove cross-country from Washington State to Pennsylvania. Police were tracking him the entire time. The suspect's lawyer, speaking to CNN, about the four murder counts his client is facing. He's doing okay. Uh, he's shocked a little bit. Um, obviously, he's calm right now. Uh, you know, we don't really know much about the case. Now, your client is highly educated, very intelligent. He has to appreciate the seriousness of what is happening right now. Oh, absolutely. He, he is very intelligent. Uh, in my hour conversation with him, that comes off. Uh, I can tell that. Uh, and he understands where we are right now. Investigators honed in on Koberger by tracking his car and through DNA evidence, according to law enforcement sources. CNN's Veronica Miracle has more on the relief that many are feeling in Idaho. 
There has been such a sense of relief in this community now that the suspect has been arrested. Of course, it doesn't change the fact that four gruesome murders took place in this seemingly safe town, in this rural college community. But now that there has been an arrest, we have heard from people who just feel such relief. In fact, one business owner came by here to the Moscow Police Department to drop off a gift. He was so grateful. He says this community, of course, has been impacted emotionally. Everyone has been on edge for the last seven weeks but it's also impacted the economy. He's a business owner and his employees are students as are most of the businesses in this town. There's other businesses who've been impacted where students have left because they just don't feel safe being in this city and so they've been studying virtually. And so now so many people are hoping that this community comes back together when students come back to class in the next couple of weeks. In terms of the Moscow Police Department, I just want to go over the fact that um, when the father drove um, the car back with him um, to Pennsylvania from Washington, um, at some point the FBI was tracking them. And I don't know what they were saying for four or five days. It's probably a lot longer than that. Now, what they were undoubtedly trying to get, and we used this word the last time, was to get his DNA without, uh, they didn't want to show their hand. So if you obtain DNA surreptitiously, and again, I'm going to use that big word, uh, that's a discarded cup, a discarded piece of food, sandwich, a straw, anything like that. They're allowed to take that because, um, Mike, you could talk about the, the expectation of privacy. You, I'll let you do it since you are an attorney. Oh, year, years ago, this was a case uh, I think Greenwood versus California back in the 1970s, a gambler, a narcotics dealer, um, threw, threw some of the proceeds of the crime out in his garbage, put it at the end of the driveway. The police were watching the house. They came by dressed as, as uh, sanitation personnel, grabbed the bags of garbage and got to, you know, use that as evidence in an indictment and they got a conviction. He appealed the case saying that <clears throat> it was gotten without a, a, a search warrant and that it violated his expectations of privacy in his in his in his belongings and things like that. Supreme Court said you don't have an expectation of privacy that we're willing to uh, consider because you're, you've discarded it. You've thrown it out. It's an abandoned piece of property. So if you throw out a, a cigarette butt, um, a straw, uh, things like that, you put them out by the curb, you have no expectations of privacy. So therefore, the police do not need a uh, search warrant or anything else. They can just grab it. So uh, if they do grab a piece of evidence like that and they're able to obtain DNA off it or exemplar of DNA and they compare it because they have DNA from the crime scene, so they don't even right away have to put it into CODIS, they can do the comparison to the unidentified DNA they have from the scene and boom, they get a hit. That gives them probable cause, doesn't it? And folks, just to remind you, because we like to uh, consider ourselves not just ex-cops, but teachers, uh, probable cause, everyone doesn't know what that means. And it means facts and circumstances that would lead a reasonable person to believe that a crime has been committed and the person being arrested committed the crime. Many people, including most journalists, don't know what the hell that means. 
but they use they use the term all the time. So I just wanted to give you the definition, and you can that that, that explains it pretty well, Bill. I thought that yeah. was an excellent explanation. Well, that's exactly the academic definition of what probable cause is. Yeah, but it's almost layman. You know, most people yeah. will understand that. It makes a lot of sense. Reasonable person. So yeah, I, I think that's uh, you hit it right on the head. And I I would hope, and I think that the FBI probably dotted every I and crossed every T as well as the state police that they whatever DNA they took from uh, the perpetrator's home was probably just laid out the way Mike said, maybe they yeah. dressed up as sanitation men and they came on the block when the right. garbage is supposed to be picked up. And, and uh, you know, if the garbage is placed outside the, the home, let's say by the curb, uh, I think the expectation of, uh, you know, uh, privacy or expectation that you'd need a warrant for that is no longer uh, in effect. And uh, they probably uh, got it that way. Yeah. Hey, Bill. The big, the, I'm sorry, Mike. The big thing about this case also for all the people, uh, and, you know, we had so many behavioral analysis from the FBI. I think they, they emptied out Quantico. There was no one in the classroom, you know. Uh, every single talking head from the FBI that was a behavioral analyst weighed in on this case. And this, look, I, in my homicide career, uh, I don't think I ever uh, dealt with a, a, a potential, well, a serial killer. And I'm not saying he's a serial killer, but he could be. If he has another incident where he killed somebody, he's a serial killer. Right now, he's a mass, well, he's being charged with mass murder again. Uh, for He's, you libertarians, he's, for, he's innocent till proven guilty and in a court of law. So he is innocent. That's our system. However, he's been arrested for this crime. Is there a possibility that he's done this before? Uh, Mike, what do you think? Um uh, I, want, uh, we, I saw in another um, like CNN interview a couple of days ago, they had an FBI uh, criminologist a profiler, and he, he, he thought that probably this wasn't the first act of violence that he has committed, that he didn't graduate to, up to that immediately, that he probably has done some other uh, violent acts. We were thinking perhaps uh, with, with an animal, uh, that sort of thing. So I, I know there was some some speculation that there was an animal killed uh, in the area uh, before the homicide, before the quadruple homicide. I mean, is it possible? It could be, um, Brian, it's possible. Uh, and that would kind of like, uh, he would be learning how to use the knife, being more comfortable, getting used to the adrenaline rush. Um, how do you do some sort of violent act and actually escape you know, all the things, all those little mechanics that he even talked about and wanted to question um, students about uh, in that master's uh, thesis when he was uh, soliciting. No, Mike, actually, that was part of his, uh, his doctoral program. Oh, his doctoral, right. Yeah, okay. Doing that for. But the other thing with that is that it's almost like he's a criminology, he's trying to get a PhD in criminology, and it's almost like he is a student of crime. He is. He's trying to pick the brains of criminals to find out what they're thinking and how they do it. Phil, you want to comment on that? Yes, I ab absolutely do. I'm going to use an analogy that uh, very common. You you know, you don't start on the top of the ladder. You gradually work your way up to the top on a ladder. You know, you get on the first step and then you go up. Uh, I think Mike's making a good point that uh, he didn't, doesn't seem likely that he raced right to uh, slaughtering four people. There may be some other things out there, but here's something that I'll pose the question to both of you and, and everybody in the chat. 
What do you think the chances are that had he gotten away or not been arrested, that if he is the killer, which we all believe he is, uh, that he would have done it again? I think that's almost 100% uh, chance that he was going to do that. And when you look at th those questions, and he was, uh, 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 you know, a, a criminology uh, going for his PhD in, in uh, you know, in criminal law, and, and he did so much research. He's asking the questions. How did you feel when you were escaping? How, how did you pick your targets over others? All those different things. This guy was doing research and he was uh, preparing to murder. And, you know, let's hope that he didn't murder anybody else, but I think there's probably a good chance that he did do some type of violent act. I think that that FBI agent was right on the money. Well, you know, I just want to also folks give you the definition of what a serial killer is. It's two or more incidents not uh, uh, bodies or individuals, right. it's incidents with time in between. Yeah. So it has to be at least two incidents with time. And that's the FBI's definition. I want to play a little bit of this. Uh, this was one of the more, uh, not this person, but it'll come up in a second. One of the profilers I thought that was pretty, pretty good. Joining me now, Mary Ellen O'Toole, a former senior FBI profiler and former FBI special agent. All right, Mary Ellen, we learned that the suspect traveled with his father cross-country from Washington State, the Washington State-Idaho border, to Pennsylvania after the crime happened. So hearing that, what's the first question that you have here? Well, obviously, the first question is, did the father know anything? And at this point, we don't know. Um, the father certainly could be um, in a position where he just wanted to help his son travel 2,500 miles, um, thought it would be easier to have company in the car and know nothing about what happened. So that still remains to be seen. What, if anything, the dad knew? And police have been very tight-lipped about whether this uh, alleged criminal knew the victim. So what would you be looking into to start to dig into that question? I'd start to look at, and I'm, I know that they are looking at this, um, from social media to um, casual contacts that the offender, in this case, the suspect had with these victims. And it could be very minor. It doesn't have to be an ongoing contact where they meet for coffee or they go out to dinner. It doesn't have to be anything that formal. It can be a very casual contact that is made. And to the, and to the victims, it would have been like, yeah, I think I saw him walking down the street. But to the offender, in this case, the suspect, it could have been uh, far more significant to include developing what we call intelligence on the victim, finding out what they're about, where, how they walk, what they say, what their voice sounds like. So the investigators are going to be looking for formal contacts, but also very, very informal contacts. And if you were in a room with him, across, sitting across from him, what kind of questions would you be asking him at this point in the investigation? You know what? That's such a great question. And I would not be asking him any questions. I would simply be in there and I would be listening and I would ask him to tell me about himself. Tell me about um, everything about you. Tell me about what makes you tick. Um, tell me about what you're studying. Tell me why you're interested in the criminal mind. And then I would listen. I would not be asking questions. She's so, so right. You know, we were all, we were always taught and I, talk about reverse, um, you know, reverse questioning. Uh, if you're questioning an investigation, give very short answers. <clears throat> give one word answers if you can, right? My, as an attorney, you know that. 
And the technique she was talking about is like, tell me about yourself. That's, I mean, even in the world of uh, people that are looking for a job, human resources, that's one of their uh, biggest questions is, tell me about yourself. And if a candidate is not ready, and I'm not comparing a candidate for a job to a murderer, but it's a questioning technique. Tell me about yourself. And you let that person run at the mouth with the thought that they're going to hang themselves with their own words. Phil, you didn't agree with that. No, I did agree with it, which is the way you laid it out. But she's saying I wouldn't be asking many questions. I'd be asking a lot of questions. I would start out with, you know, uh, the general stuff, you know, try to develop a rapport. I mean, if, if let, let's say they got a, uh, someone dropped a dime on this particular individual and they said, we think he's involved in it. And you go knock on the door and you, you don't have DNA, you don't have anything. Start to talk to him, bring him into the precinct. Let's say, you know, you go to school, blah, blah, blah. Do you happen to know any of these victims? Things like that. Just tr start tr trying to put it out there, develop a rapport with the guy. And then once he starts to give information and you see that he's starting to, you know, he's telling you some lies. You're going to let him keep telling those lies. Keep going on with the, you know, note it. Keep going on with the interview. And then at some point, you're going to hit him with the, you lied about this. You lied about that. You lied about this. You're going to jail. You're getting the death penalty. Things like that. And, you know, hopefully at that point, the blood would go out of his face and he'd continue to lie. And, I mean, that's what uh, uh, a person that's very familiar with interview and interrogation, I would think that's the course that they would take in a situation where you have a person that you want to talk to about a, a quadruple homicide. Pierre, thank you for the $5 super chat. I wonder if his course of study was a failed attempt to cope with his urges. Maybe he thought he could fix himself. You know, Pierre, a lot of times people that really think they're smart, they think they can outsmart the police. We've had that a lot, a bunch of times when you'll interview a doctor or an attorney, and they think they're so smart that they can outsmart you. Except, as I've said numerous times in an investigation, they're on your home court, you know, and you have all the advantages of, of being on the home court, and they're not going to outsmart the investigator. This guy, I think, th also thinks that he's very smart and that he can outsmart the investigators. And I think that's. I mean, he was smart enough, of course, right away to invoke counsel. Mike? Yeah, I think the, uh, that the, uh, he, it is maybe uh, a way for him to try to understand. Maybe he can't cure himself, but to understand what his criminal urges were. He knows that people don't think this way. The normal average person doesn't think about killing or is fantasizing about it or is even enters their mind on a daily basis or, or any sort of thing. People don't have those homicidal urges. And yeah, it is probably a way for him. He's a very intelligent man and he does understand that people, that he's different. And maybe it is a, a, a strange attempt to perhaps understand and maybe control in certain ways his, his own criminal urges. You know, Bill, can I ask, uh, can I just go back for one second to a, uh, a point that Phil made a little while ago. Sure. Uh, when when Phil was talking about the uh, father driving back 2,000 miles from Idaho back to Pennsylvania, and, and he was going over the things that would pro the father would, might ask. And also, uh, what I would also want to see, what did the father do after he and his son got home to Pennsylvania? Because if the father did anything to try and say perhaps – uh, wash the car, get it detailed, hide the car, that would show some consciousness of guilt. 
and that perhaps he and his son had a deep, long conversation about the, uh, the, the uh, Moscow murders. And that would then implicate the father as an accessory, as a conspirator, co-conspirator after the fact. But you know, you know, Mike, just to interrupt that, you, Mike, oh, yeah. to interrupt you for one second. Yeah. You would not want to believe that. However, we saw that in the Gabby Petito case. Yes. And yes. the laundries were really shitty people. They really were. Brian Laundry's parents were two pieces of shit. Basically, I think their son told them that he killed his fiance. And what did they do? They covered it up. And they got an attorney and they hid behind lawyer-client privilege. And look, that's their right as an American. But that doesn't make them good people. In my mind, it makes them bad people. You killed your 22-year-old, 23-year-old girlfriend. Oh, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna help you get away with it. So what you're saying, Mike, is he could have told his father that he just murdered four people, and the possibility exists his father because okay, let's see if we can. And I'm not right. saying he did that, no. but we've seen this done before, and his father could have said, Okay, we gotta work with this, we gotta see what we can uh how we can get you to get away with this. Yeah. But I wonder thing. if they yeah. even spoke about it. I mean, you would think the father might have said to him, wow, you know, did you hear about that murder? What do you think? That would be something that I would want to ask the father if there was a conversation about it, you know? If the father did, set, if they if they had that conversation and the father said, look, the best thing I could do to tell you as a dad is we need to get you a defense lawyer immediately as soon 100%. as you get back to uh, Pennsylvania. There's no problem with that. But if the father had in some way tried to cover up uh, by damage by with the car or something like hiding the car, then it would show consciousness of, consciousness of guilt. And so far, we don't see that at all. And I hope that's not the case. Uh, Lacey Fontenot, uh, thank you for answering that. I, I I didn't know myself. People in the chat were asking what did um, Brian's so, father do? And he works in HVAC, yeah, uh, right. heating and air conditioning. Yeah. Um, I want to play this. This is one of his classmates. And let's hear what his, one of his classmates has to say about him. So looking back at the uh, following the homicides overnight in Moscow, Idaho, um, I did notice that he was, you know, he was showing up to class a little late. Sometimes he always had a coffee in hand. He always seemed to be just perpetually exhausted. Um, and, most of that as a graduate student, that is not unusual. That is fairly normal. Um, it didn't raise any red flags at the time. And like everybody in a graduate program, there's a little bit of awkwardness. You're trying to fit in. You're trying to find your niece. And Brian Goldberger fit in that. He was awkward. He was trying to fit in. He was trying to uh, get his inroad into this group and establish these social bonds with other members of the cohort. Um, but now looking back in hindsight, having this, these allegations come almost entirely out of left field, all of that feels less like normal trying to fit in, and it just feels unsettling. So, you know, someone, um, what, what, he, what, he's, what he's describing, someone that's perpetually tired walking around with a coffee in their hand, sounds like me when I was in homicide. I was just going to say, it's not like walked, the detectives that worked this case. I, I walked around like a zombie, never got enough sleep, and I always had to have a coffee in my hand to, to help me stay awake. So, uh, but, I mean, that's him describing his classmate. And they're all, of course, uh, PhD students. And um, PhD students are, I'm sure, a lot different if you looked at personality-wise from other students. Um, they're, they're, they're a lot different. Their whole demeanor is a lot different. They're a lot more cerebral. 
they're really professional students uh, when you think of it. Mike? Yeah. If you're going to uh, a PhD program or a law, law program, you're not getting a lot of sleep. You are work, you're working the professors because you're, you're in a professional school. The, uh, the teachers will be treat you almost as if you're their peer and they'll hold you to a very high standard because in a couple of years, you will be their peers with the name doctor or you or for a law student, you'll be in court representing a client. So they, so if you are unprepared for class, they take that very seriously. That is, that is akin to being unprepared uh, for a court date in, you know, with, in front of a judge with your client. That is absolutely verboten. Uh, everybody walks around with, you know, uh, coffee mugs, you know, huge coffee mugs, uh, soda, uh, drinking soda nonstop. Red Bull. Oh, yeah. anything that you can think of to get you through the day because you have a lot of reading to do, a lot of writing to do. Absolutely. There are different breeds. When you get to that level, that's no, that's no joke. Absolutely. Snug with Pug, thank you so much for the $14.99 super uh, sticker. Thank Very you. much appreciated. Thank you so much. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you like this podcast, we deliver our, our uh, analysis from a police perspective. Please go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell, and please, your comments are appreciated. We read all the comments later on. Many of them, not maybe not all of them, we respond to, and we appreciate your comments. Uh, as long as it's kept civilly and you don't call me uh, Pop. That <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Irish. Someone called me Pop in the last uh, chat, and I said, that's Sergeant Pop to you as I, <laughs> as I teleported him to a, a different... Uh, a di different atmosphere, you know. But anyway, Which one yeah, of us is the oldest. That's what I want to know. Yeah, we we appreciate your comments and, and uh, you know, and also you know, give us a thumbs up if you like this show. That all that all helps helps us out in the long run. You know, one of the things that I really uh, we spoke about the last time, and uh, people got sort of a kick out of. We called it the perpology, and that's the study of the perp. And there's a field day with this one because. They got to look into so many th different things. We didn't mention the last time. Yeah, they got to look into his financial records. That could be one way that they discover the knife and where he bought the knife. Knife, the knife from. He yeah. probably used a debit card or somewhere he didn't pay cash. And they may be able to track it that way. Speak to all of his friends. Did he ever? Does he have a girlfriend? Did he ever have a girlfriend? Uh, speak to some of the. Um, Businesses that he frequents, bars, restaurants, that type of thing. His professors, of course. His family members. I, I think I saw Fox or a New York Post reporter spoke to um, two of his aunts that were estranged from the family. And it wasn't really all that helpful because I don't think they – but that's the whole thing. It's it's We call it perpology, but it's also backgrounding. And that's so important because that's what they're going to find out all kinds of things about him. Of course, his digital footprint. So, so, so important. His cell phone, his calls, his cell sites he hit, all of those things are hugely, hugely important. And that's how they're going to build this case. Besides the physical evidence and the uh, the hairs, the fibers, the blood, the DNA, they got to build a case around this. Because, Mike, as you can explain, explain to people what circumstantial evidence is. And I, I could give the academic definition to that. It's Evidence from which inferences are drawn. Now right. you can you can uh, explain it in a lawyerly way. Yeah. The uh, in this case, there's since there's no living eyewitness to the to the uh, incident, 
uh, all of the evidence, 99.99% of the evidence, including the DNA, is all circumstantial evidence because it requires the jury. Now, the jury is the what they call the trier of fact. It is up to a, the jury to decide what the facts are. And if they discount certain evidence and say that's not really relevant, we don't really care, or we think this evidence is much more important, that's up to them to determine when they go in the in the jury room and decide guilt, you know, acquittal or guilt. So, inf so uh, circumstantial evidence is evidence that requires an inference because it is not an eyewitness that says, I actually saw the assault take place. Uh, someone who may have heard a scream, someone who may have said, oh, I saw Brian run down the street at three o'clock in the morning, drive out of with that Elantra, tear assing out of that neighborhood at like 90 miles an hour. That's all little bits of circumstantial evidence that put together, put together, you know, in, in, in court by the district attorney could lead a reasonable jury to conclude, okay, what does this piece mean? What does this piece mean? What does that piece mean? And they then put it all together and then use that to determine guilt or innocence. So in essence, circumstantial ev evidence can be extremely powerful. Oh, yes. When piled up on top of each other, it's very, very powerful. Oh, yes. Yes. One other point about circumstantial evidence, when circumstantial evidence is put forward at trial, let's say uh, you bring in an eyewitness that says, yeah, I saw uh, him in the area. Uh, didn't see the actual murder, but I saw him in the area. Now that witness would be challenged by the defense. And then it's up to the jury later on during the deliberation to say, you know what? I believe that witness that put him at that location. And then you're going to have all the other things, whether it be DNA evidence, cell phone technology. We talked about early on, and this really came to be true. We said in the first days that we covered this, that we would be looking for video evidence of any vehicles, any people in that area. And sure enough, uh, it took, uh, I guess, a week or two before the uh, video came forward with the white Elantra. So that was something that we were talking about early on from our investi investigative experience that uh, we would be searching those areas, traffic cameras, all the things that we brought up. So again, there was a video camera that showed a white car speeding uh, from the area and it turned out to be the perpetrator's car as we know now. So again, uh, very, very important stuff. But that circumstantial case, a lot of times, uh, still leads to a conviction. Like you said, Bill, it piles up. It's very powerful. This is going to talk about uh, what's next in the Idaho investigation. Officials have now made an arrest in the brutal murders of those four University of Idaho, Idaho students that took place back in November. 28-year-old Brian Koberger was apprehended some 2,500 miles away from the crime scene in Pennsylvania and has been charged with four counts of murder as well as a count of burglary. For more on this case, we are joined by Casey Jordan, a criminologist, behavioral analyst, and professor at Western Connecticut State University. Casey, good morning. Thanks for being here today. Okay. Casey, I want to get right to this if we can right now. Clearly, this is a major break in a case that many feared had gone cold. We have been waiting for some answers for now nearly seven weeks here, and we have now learned more about this suspect, 28-year-old Brian Koberger, among other things. He was getting a PhD in criminology, so clearly had a fascination with crime. And while the authorities there won't detail anything about a possible motive what does what we're learning about him tell you about a possible motivation for these murders? So I wasn't surprised at all to find out that he was studying criminology and, and his fellow students say he had an interest in forensic psychology. I mean, it's really disheartening to people who work in criminology 
But very often we have seen with killers of this nature and serial killers, we don't know if, if he would have committed this crime again or if he's done it in the past, but they can be if you will, groupies of criminology with encyclopedic knowledge of crimes, doing case study after case study and wanting to become experts. His fellow students in that PhD program said that he was awkward. He would be quiet and be and give them long stares. But the biggest thing is that he wanted to be an expert on everything. He would over explain everything, almost imposter syndrome, wanted to be super academic. But they turned to class after these murders happened and that he was extremely animated, perhaps even manic. Well, and, and Casey, we know that investigators were pouring through nearly 20,000 tips. They were keeping the details of their investigation very close to the vest, but they had been trailing this suspect for quite some time. What do you think ultimately led to this arrest? Uh, the white Hyundai Elantra was the lynch. We all said that the Elantra, when that first came out, that they had on video near the house at around the same time as the murders, they were looking for a white Hyundai Elantra. And of course, they put out that, why not just talk to the witnesses in that car? I knew immediately that was the perp's car. And I had said it on our show. I said, yes. that's not witnesses. Trust me, that's not witnesses. You know, we would stand in the door of a murder and say, listen, we just we need to talk to you for like 10 minutes. Just come to the precinct. You'll be back here in 10 minutes. It's just, we got to clear this matter up. So I've, I've heard that. Before dinner gets cold. You'll be, yeah, you'll be back before dinner. We'll even order you a pizza, you know. But uh, I knew that that was not true. And I knew that this white Hyundai Elantra was what we referred to uh, uh, tons of times during this investigation as the smoking gun. And the smoking gun was the white Hyundai Elantra. And it, again, it wasn't easy to find. But now, did the DNA, the genealogical hit on the DNA, did that lead to the white Hyundai Elantra or, or vice versa? Mike? Yeah, the, uh, I, it's the, whether or not it's, uh, it's got to be the DNA that, that led to that. Um, there, uh, because you you had just um, the video, the really grainy video. Um, I think probably early on, uh, the state the state police in Idaho contacted the Washington University in the area and was and said, you know, do you have any uh, Hyundai Elantras, in, you know, in 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 that area, in that in that like the geofencing area, like thirty miles uh, radius. And once they found that there was uh, some uh, registered. And they found that uh, Brian's was uh, probably registered with his university for a parking permit and parking privileges. Um, then you got uh, that the, the Elantra is like a Petri dish. I don't know if that's a proper term, a Petri dish, because it's got all kinds of DNA in it. It's got hair follicles. If he if he if he was bleeding that night, he got some of their blood on that in on the on a, a seat or in a, on the handle. Um, if it hasn't, you know, as you said, Billy, even, um, you could do a lot of detailing and you're going to miss a lot. And you, that's with luminol, it will still light up that Honda. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The Hyundai is, uh, is, a, is an amazing bit of evidence. And so hopefully uh, it's been preserved and it's uh, being gone over. I think it is being gone over as we speak. And uh, it's that Petri dish full of information that you can get on him. And so it's, it was probably the most 
important piece of evidence. My, or Mike, my, the chicken or the egg, the the, the, the Hyundai or, or, or the DNA. And it, it probably yeah. it was the DNA that led to the Hyundai. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah, I wish we, they, I, you know, I'm frustrated too. I wish we knew more about those early days. I wish we did. We're, we're going to find out. But Mike, let me make a point real quick. If they recovered a car, let's just say that he cut out the carpeting. That's almost circumstantial evidence. Consciousness of guilt. Sure. Yeah, yeah, it's going to show that. Well, he he changed the, the interior of the car. Yeah. Post, uh, probably post, they can, maybe they can even figure out exactly when he purchased this new rug or whatever. Or the cleaning of the car, that's also going to be like a circumstantial thing that he intended to maybe cover up evidence. You can put that out there at trial. You can make those points. Absolutely. And, and, and again, like you also brought up, Mike, maybe he asked his father to do it for him or he or, or yeah. the father did the father take the car to a uh, a detailing shop you know what i mean mm -hmm. because he doesn't want to do it he knows he's he's dirty for the murder so he's going to ask his dad to do it all of those things could be even if there's no evidence you know direct evidence recovered that's something that would fall into circumstantial to say oh, yes. yeah you know he was trying to cover up you can you can make that assertion in court yes it's circumstantial evidence of consciousness of guilt yes. absolutely you know, Tom Cusinelli, who's a retired NYPD captain, he's oh, being a little bit of a, of a wise-ass in the chat. He's saying, uh, he's saying, what a uh, perpology with pop. <laughs> but I have a sense of humor, and I find that very I like funny. that. I like that. I like that. I like that, too. But, you know, we can't, uh, you know, a lot of folks are talking about uh, where does this investigation go now? And the intensity the intensity of the investigation is not what it was uh, a, a day or two ago, but they're still working hard because they have to build this case. They have to come in with a solid case. Imagine having this guy and losing at trial. That's really not an option. That's not an option to lose a trial. So you hear the term ad nauseum. We got to cross the T's and dot the I's, but it's so true. And I bet you there's investigators, the FBI, the Idaho State Police, the Moscow Police, trying to get more and more circumstantial evidence, physical evidence, documentary evidence to make sure that this guy never walks the streets of this world again as a free man. Billy, how about this? As an investigator, and you may have gone through it, you too, Mike, uh, you're working on a homicide case. And you're trying to hunt that individual before they kill again. And I've had that happen where someone went on a rampage and uh, a particular case that I just did on a New York homicide where they had started out the day, they shot a priest, carjacked him, left him for, for dead. He wound up surviving. They had killed a retired sergeant uh, who had just recently retired, uh, shot and killed somebody else. These guys went on a rampage. We didn't apprehend them for about three or four weeks into the, into the case. And again, you know, every day that went on, we were worrying are these guys going to kill again? So that was the pressure that these investigators were up against. They knew they had a madman on their hands, on their hands that had slaughtered four very innocent, very young, beautiful kids. And the thing was, is it going to happen again? Is this killer going to strike again? So now that they have the person that they believe to be responsible for it in custody, again, it could slow down a little bit, but there's still a lot more work to be done. You know, folks, you may ask, um, what did the family know or the families know uh, prior to this arrest, did they, uh, did they know more than the regular community? And the answer is, yes, they did. Let's play a little bit of this. Excruciatingly painful day for your clients, I can only imagine. Can you tell me how much they knew prior to this morning's arrest about what was going to happen? 
Well, we were contacted last night by Moscow PD, so they gave us a phone call and then they gave us some more details this morning. So we knew before everyone else did. So they did a good job of contacting the family. Well, that is actually quite remarkable, right? Uh, given the fact that uh, they were going to execute that arrest warrant um, early in the morning. And so did they get um, did they get effectively the play by play as it was happening, as they caught the suspect, brought him in, cuffed him, uh, put him into the cruiser and processed him back at the station in Pennsylvania? No, it was, you know, the uh, information we received is that they had found someone in Pennsylvania that they had arrested and had a suspect in custody. Didn't give us really any more information than that. Immediately contacted the family and spoke with them, obviously, you know, relieved to a certain degree and and hopefully and optimistic that this is the right person and they're going to, uh, you know, it's a whole nother process now starting the criminal justice process um, now that, that they have someone in custody, so. Arguably, as you know, being a litigator for, for a long time and having worked in, in murders as well, this is the most painful part of the process because it's lengthy and it's detailed and it is uncomfortable. And oftentimes the information is not something that, you know, um, anyone ever imagines they'll have to actually look at or assess uh, on their own children. D is there anything that, that the family can, can think of that would be a connection a nexus between this suspect and these four kids. I and mean, you and I talked about the fact that they didn't think that Kaylee had any connection. But what about Maddie, Ethan, Zana? Um, any thought about the connections here? Well, you know, like everyone else, we just found out this morning. So I think that's part of the, the Moscow Police Department, you know, giving the press conference today, asking for more information about this uh, Koberger kid or guy um, and wanting more information about him. I think it's probably trying to help them out form these connections. Uh, if there are connections or if it's random or whatever it is, uh, you know, the idea that he, he was a Washington State University um, student and, you know, lived less than 10 miles away, um, the idea that there might be, a, might be a connection with one of the four victims in the case is, is, is probable, at least in passing, um, somewhere, somehow, so. You know, folks, one of the things in regards to uh, people asking questions about the search warrant of his parents' home, yes, they would search the home. There would probably be limitations in the warrant. I don't know if they would get permission from a judge to search the entire house. But however, another thing that non-law enforcement people don't realize, they would also photograph his body because he could have old wounds Uh consistent with stabbing someone on his body, healed up wounds, because you're out, this happened November 13th. So they would definitely photograph his entire body uh, as part of the investigation. Clothing in his house, they would take as much, they would inspect the clothing, they would try to maybe find clothing that even potentially could have been worn that night. Because even if you launder clothing with blood on it, there's a potential that you didn't get everything. So all of those things are considerations. This is a big time forensic case. And all of those things must be taken into consideration, even though it is uh, seven, eight weeks since since the crime. The, the uh, uh, off-campus housing that he had at uh, WSU, that's another tremendous crime scene because we know he probably went back to that location. He lived there for several weeks after the murders took place. So, again, that's one of the places that I would definitely want to lock down 
go over every inch of that location to try and find a piece of hair, uh, a droplet of blood, any type of uh, evidence that's going to connect them to the crime. And, uh, you know, Bill, you, you used that word purpology. It's a canonism, but uh, I think it's <laughs> really, really, no, it's really, really important in, in this case because uh, we heard reports about how he was, when he interacted with women at a local bar in Pennsylvania, that he would start to get into their personal lives. Where do you live? And when they rebuffed him, he would become irate. So again, that's a little bit of a, uh, a profile of how he was prior to uh, these murders and, and his interaction with women, so to speak. So again, something like that may have triggered him against the uh, victims in his case. Of course, uh, also we know that he's uh, some type of a vegan and they worked in a vegan restaurant. Perhaps there was an interaction at the restaurant. So all of those things are going to be very, very important things uh, that are going to be done regarding purpology. They want to know as much as they can. And again, that may give us the motive as to why he decided to strike out at that location on these four young people. You know, one of the things I was thinking of, and I pride myself in thinking of almost every, well, and I don't because I miss some, but thinking of every possible investigative uh, technique that I possibly can think of. And one of them that I just thought of is that they got to go back and see where he's traveled. I'd say in the last five or 10 years, Absolutely. he could have killed someone in another country. He could have killed someone in another state, you know? So they got to look at that painstakingly. When you talk about building a timeline, building this timeline is, well, they know where he lived based on he went to college undergrad in Pennsylvania. DeSalle's college, I believe it was. He got his undergrad and his master's degree there. So he was probably living in that area. But where did he go? Did he ever fly to another to a foreign country? Did he ever go to other states? They really have to look into that because if they're considering him as a possible potential serial killer, he could have killed someone years ago in another state. And that's why this DNA and CODIS and getting his DNA sample and putting it in CODIS is so important because it will be compared against forensic DNA that's in CODIS. Billy, what's that? There's a database when you have a homicide or an unidentified person. It's like a federal database. Do you recall what it was? I can't think of the name of it offhand where you could you could submit. If you had a victim of either a homicide or an unidentified DOA, you could put it into that database to see if anything uh, matches. I know what you're talking about, but I can't think of the name of it right now. In fact, I think they stopped actually using that. And that's oh, one of did? the reasons. Vicap. 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 That's it. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I would think that they would try to put, uh, you know, the uh, the circumstances of this homicide into a VICAP to see if there's anything similar. And again, they, they have to be doing that, Billy. They have to be. Well, part of all of this, too, and, and, and I mean, to me, it's fascinating, and I don't have a background in this, and that's what all these FBI people who are the behavioral analysts, how close were they in predicting uh, who this was going to be? And we not being behavioral analysts, we predicted early on, it's going to be a male. He's going to be between the ages of blah, blah, blah. We said, 30. yeah, 20 and 30. Yeah. We said that, you know, but we said 85, 90% chance it's a male. And we're not behavioral analysts. Um, we also said that uh, there was Going a the percent chance that he left DNA at the scene. Oh, yeah. Boom. He did. And Barbara Butcher and uh, Ed Wallace, they confirmed that to me. And I knew that they were going to find his DNA. As soon as they said it, I was like, there's two of the best experts in the nation. They're going to find his DNA in that crime scene. 
Absolutely. And, you know, think about it. Nobody was going to waltz into that location, slaughter four people. We knew there was defensive wounds. Perhaps one of the people fought back, scratched him. All of those different things, you know, and we've mentioned it ad nauseum, as you always say, Bill, low cards theory of exchange. If uh, you go in, you take something in. When you leave, you take something out. Uh, you leave something there. So, again, uh, the chances of that, we were calling that, we were saying 99% chance right from the beginning. And, uh, Lo and behold, uh, there was definitely DNA evidence that was recovered from the perpetrator inside the location. Absolutely. Mike, I want to shift gears a little bit here. Uh, I'll play devil's advocate. You're his attorney. What kind of of defense are you preparing? And, you know, one thing that always amazes me, and I sort of know the answer to to this, but, I mean, I, I think a defense attorney really has to know that his client did a certain crime, like actually did it, knows that the guy's guilty, but they can't pretend that they know that because wouldn't that be a a, a violation of of your oath as a lawyer? Well, um, the, the uh, he's entitled to, you know, a good counsel, competent counsel, and he's got two choices. He's going to enter a plea of uh, not guilty uh, and say, look, you've got the wrong person. It's compl- it's what's a, it's what's called a complete defense. You got the wrong guy. It is a terrible mistake here. I deny, you know, having any kind of criminal mental state and had taken part in any sort of criminal acts. That's a complete defense. When you interpose a complete defense as a defendant, the prosecutor has the burden of proving each and every element of the crime, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt, the corpus delecti, we talk about that because he enjoys the presumption of innocence because he's declaring his innocence. However, if the, if the, inter, uh, the defense that is interposed is an affirmative defense, like an excuse defense, then it changes a little bit. Even though the prosecutor still bears the burden of proving each and every element of the crime, the corpus delecti beyond a reasonable doubt, the perpetrator, the defendant, the defense, the defendant in the case is interposing an excuse like mental illness, infancy, intoxication, mistake, you know, renunciation, duress, things like that. They actually, at that point, have to actually prove the credibility of their defense because they're admitting to committing the act, but they're denying having the criminal mental state. So they actually have to prove that they did not have the, the requisite criminal mental state, intentional, you know, homicide. So it does change the dynamics in the courtroom. And I think in this in this situation, I don't think he has anywhere else to go but to say uh, um, mental illness and not guilty by reason of insanity. So I think that's the only thing he can do. You know, Mike, uh, someone is is asking, and this is, uh, first of all, Paul K., thank you for the $10 super chat. Happy New Year's, guys. Check definition of Asperger's syndrome. I don't really know about that. I can't really do it right now. I will check when I go off the air, but Paul K., thank you for the $10 super chat. Uh, how much will the fact that the police allowed the removal of property from the crime scene, how much will that hurt the case? Uh I think probably very little because there's so there's so much evidence that they have uh, so far at this point against the defendant. Um, a, 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 um, a, a defense attorney, a competent defense attorney is going to be pounding the table, you know, working as hard as they can to to go to the jury and say, look, 
you know, there is reasonable doubt here as to my client's guilt, because if we had been able to access the crime scene and it had been unaltered, we would have had the ability to challenge, you know, the admission of all the little articles, the DNA and all the other things. But because the police actually did not give my client that ability to go in there and examine the, an unaltered crime scene, that there's this denial of due process. It could possibly uh, be an issue on appeal if he's convicted, possibly, but I don't think so because I think probably Chief Fry and, you know, I remember he was doing everything in consultation with the FBI and the Idaho State Police that they probably in Idaho they may do this sort of thing. It seems inexplicable to us here in New York, but maybe that's the way they do it there. So it does give the defense attorney the ability to pound the table and point fingers at the prosecutor and saying, uh, my client's not getting a fair trial. I don't think the jury is really going to be that impressed by that sort of argument. That's an argument more that you hold in your pocket for, uh, for appeal if he's convicted. Uh, Brittany O, um, I'm thinking the DNA they got was from under the nails of one of the victims or all of them. We actually hope and pray that that's where the yeah. DNA came from because that would be almost impossible right. to thwart uh, the evidence coming from that, the DNA coming from that location. Whereas if it came from downstairs on a wall, on a table that's away from the crime scene, a defense attorney could say, oh, he's he was, he's been there before. He attended parties there. Uh Magical Mary, thanks for the 499 super chat. I, Idaho is one of four states that doesn't allow an insanity defense. I, um, I wasn't aware of that. I don't know if you're aware. Mike, you were not, aware of it either. No, I was not aware of, of that. Idaho wouldn't allow that. Mike, uh, an insanity defense, uh, from my understanding, and I did see some uh, reporting on it recently on cable news, um, the person has to think the act that they committed was not an illegal act. Uh, and I think that, you know, uh, that's a far stretch yeah. in a case yeah. like this, uh, and especially with someone who is as intelligent right. as this perpetrator, you know, he's a PhD right. in criminal justice and all of that. So again, I, I think that would be a major stretch to, to yeah. get a, a jury or a judge to go along with that. Correct. Mike? Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's rarely used maybe in, you know, not e less than 10% of all trials which isn't 10% of all, you know, cases because 90% of cases are plea bargained. So right. the 10% that's not plea bargained, maybe less than one in 10, is there an imposition, uh, you know, of, uh, of, of something like insanity. And the problem is, even if you do plead it, you actually have to prove that you were so, you know, disabled by a, a mental illness that you didn't appreciate the consequences of your action or that the uh, criminal impulse was something that was uncontrollable, or, or that you didn't really understand that what you were doing was a criminal act. It, it, that's why it's never, it's almost never successful because you would have to be pretty much, and I don't mean to make light of it, you'd have to be pretty much a raving lunatic, uh, screaming and yelling. The moment that you are, that the prosecutor is showing that you have a car, you, you're going to school, you're in a graduate program, 
you know, you pay your bills on time, you pay your tuition, you'd, you'd hand in your papers on time, you study in groups with people, you've accomplished all these things in your life, that to all of those things totally negates any sort of belief in the jury's mind that you're disabled. It's, right. it's, 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 uh, that's all he's got. I, I, other than that, I don't know where you go. I don't know uh, where you go. Catnap, does body sweat contain DNA? Yeah. The answer is yes, it does. 100%. It does. Uh, you know, body fluids, biological Fingernail fluids. clippings. Uh, yeah. Hair, fingernails. Lots of things. So Just, many, you could actually, we talked about a touch DNA. You could touch a surface. And I had a homicide, uh, a triple homicide, also by stabbing, where a touch DNA was found inside the clothing of one of the victims by uh, the perpetrator's DNA. I want to play a little bit of Chief Fry here since he took so much heat during this investigation. Let's let him bask a little bit in the limelight. Now been 24 hours since that name, Brian Koberger, has started making the rounds. You guys have publicized it. Are the tips coming in yes. about him? I can say that the one fact I do know is they told me an hour into us releasing the name, we had over 400 people calling in. So we continue to ask for that. We continue to ask for more. Um, every tip, everybody that knew him is only going to help us. Is, are these tips from here, from everywhere? I don't, I don't know where they came from. Um, um, you know, if, if it's any indicative of this case, they've come from all over, um, you know, the nation. Okay. Um, the, your ask about the white Elantra, that came on December 7th or so. Where in the timeline can you tell us did Koberger come in onto the radar. So that's all part of those pieces that we have to hold until we can release information with the, you know, after after he gets to Idaho and the, the release of that information, but we're, we're bound to hold that. But when you asked for public information about that Elantra, you said the occupant occupants of that car may have critical information, mm -hmm. it was plural. Is, was there a reason for that? Well, it's part of our investigation. We're, we're I said early on that we're not going to let any stone go unturned. And, and I meant that. And we're following up on everything, just like we're in this new phase now. And we're going to follow up to get to know who he is and uh, everything about him that we can. There are reports that the Elantra was followed across the country. Um, can you elaborate on that or speak to that and also reports of DNA, his DNA at the murder scene. All those facts are still sealed. They will come out. Uh, I know I know people are anxious for that. And uh, we will have the answers to that, but in the time that we can give it. Uh, so I ask once again, just be patient. Um, I know I've asked that a lot of times, but uh, we are bound by the law now. It's been reported and we have sources who have told us that Koberger asked was anyone else arrested upon his arrest? Um, have you been able to gather information about when he was taken into custody? All that information will, will come out as well. Um, you know, it's part of that investigation. It's part of that next step. So, okay. The uh, car, the white Elantra 2015, is it the car and is the search over now for any more white Elantras? We believe it is the car. Okay. Is it in Pennsylvania then? Yes. Okay. And is it done being processed? I don't know if it's done, but it will be processed. 
Okay. Um, as you know, I was over at Wazoo yesterday at Koberger's apartment. Um, I think that's uh, when I referred to a smoking gun piece of evidence that Hyundai Elantra is as close as you can get to it. And of course, the number one piece of evidence is the DNA. And if we find out the DNA was removed from the bodies of the deceased, that's even uh, more powerful evidence than the Hyundai Elantra. Adrian Elizabeth, thank you for the $10 super chat. Send an email about why Asperger's theory is irrelevant. Well, thank you, because I like to learn too. And I don't know a lot about Asperger's and what it possibly has to do with this. But Adrian Elizabeth, thank you so much. Uh, uh, Lelia, Lelia Chafe, thank you for the five ninety nine. Uh, I think it's five ninety nine pound. I think that's the symbol or some other denomination. But thank you for your contributions to us. Really appreciate it. You know, guys, this case is really, uh, to us, um, you know, basically law enforcement, former, you know, law enforcement, retired law enforcement, it's a fascinating case. It really is. But when you think of it, that four lives were taken uh, as a result of this person who people now want to study his brain, you know, and again, I'll repeat it for the people that want that he's innocent to proven guilty. That's all true. But some of the evidence they have against him is so, so strong that we have to uh, – they have probable cause to arrest them. We have to be relieved that they got the right guy. Phil? Bill, I am absolutely looking forward to, as a former investigator, uh, law enforcement all of my adult life, I am looking forward to finding out further facts of how this whole case came together and developed. I'm not looking forward to four people being slaughtered, obviously. It's a horrible, horrible thing. But the fact that this case did take place, the investigation was painstaking. It went on for a, you know longer than everybody wanted it to. But again, they did come up with enough to make the arrest. They put together the case. I'm very interested to hear uh, a lot of the things that the chief was just talking about that are going to come out looking forward. My inquisitiveness is because I am an investigator. My uh, Most of my uh, career as a police officer, as a law enforcement officer, I was a detective. And this stuff just fascinates me. And again, uh, we learn from it. That's the other thing. We take away from every case that we do, every investigation we conducted, every interview we did. None is exactly the same. They're all different. However, you learn, you take away something from it. And I think that that's what we're doing on the podcast is we're maybe teaching people or telling people about how things go. So again, we don't have these conspiracy theories where people just run off and start making accusations. We know what that led to people being harassed and everything else that goes along with it. But I am looking forward to hearing the details of how they put together the case against this, uh, this perpetrator Kohlberger. Bill, you want to just, uh, Sure. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of the fence. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Joe is a big supporter of police off the cuff real crime stories and a tremendous criminal defense attorney ditto he's uh he's he's uh 
Great guy. Ordered us right up from the beginning. And Joe Murray, if you're listening, thank you so much for what you do. So, folks, you know, we're going to continue to follow this. And like Phil said, I'm interested in hearing a lot about uh, the forensic evidence. And, you know, of course, the orders of the of the assault, of the attack, uh, because we don't specifically know that right now. Things have linked out. We've had numerous experts that never saw the crime scene telling us this happened in this right. order and this happened in that order. But they weren't at the crime scene, so they can't tell us with any specificity or expertise that that's how it happened. So I would be interested. I'd be interested to know how he got in the house, how he left the house, and when he left the house, did he go on foot to a car that was parked a quarter of a mile or a half a mile away? I, all of those things interest me as an investigator. Mike, I'm going to give you um, your, your last words. All right. Thank you. I think the uh, kudos to uh, Chief Fry and uh, looking at that interview where he's wearing the golf shirt, my heart goes out to the man for the pressure he was under. And I certainly would not want to play poker with that man, with that face he could keep. That was a, he did an amazing job for, for all those weeks. And the pressure he was under um, was just incredible. And the only thing I hope is that the investigators find that one Big piece of evidence, the uh, the knife. Uh, if I'm a prosecutor in this case, I want that knife. I want to show that knife to that jury. And I want the jury to to actually pass that around and hold the knife. Because that's, that's the tactile sense that gives the jury the ability to say, you know, they look at that person sitting behind the defense table and they look at that knife in their hand and they think of those four innocent children. I hope they find the knife. I just, I just keep my fingers crossed that they hope that they they, they find that knife. And, and, and that would be a big deal. 100%. Phil, final words. Final words. I'm just going to echo what Mike said. There's nothing more powerful than finding the weapon in a homicide investigation like this. And again, like he said, if you were to pass that knife around to the jury and they could feel and see the weight of it, the size of it, uh, and realize just how, uh, you know, impactful it would be on a human body had uh, a person been attacked with it. And obviously these four individuals were, uh, yes, that's what I'm hoping for too. That's a good point, Mike. And I'm glad you Thank brought you. it up. Absolutely. Folks. So this was police off the cuff, real crime stories. I want to wish everyone a happy new year, uh, 2023. We want to pray for the families of these, uh, the four victims. Um, they totally didn't deserve that. We can never lose sight of the fact that there were, Four real victims in this case, Ethan Chapin, Zaina Canodal, Madison Mogan, and Kaylee Gonsalves. And that's who we work for, who the police work for, homicide investigators work for, is they work for the victim and the victim's family. And in the words of Vernon Gebert, the uh, retired NYPD lieutenant who wrote Practical Homicide Investigation, we work for God. With that, I want everyone to have a great night. And we'll see you very soon. God bless. Stay safe, everyone. Happy New Year. One episode, just ain't enough.